Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Finding someone who shares your values in today's culture isn't easy. And being single around the holidays isn't easy either. That's why Catholic Singles created a website and app where single Catholics can meet and get to know each other that focuses on values, activities, and interests. For over two decades, Catholic Singles has been fostering deep relationships because your faith matters. Start today at catholicsingles.com. Ignatius Press is That's pleased Catholic to announce Singles. the first national book club created for Catholic schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to ignatiusbookclub.com podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com. CMF Curo, healthcare fully alive. Welcome to Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this third episode of Hilaire Belloc's classic book, we're considering Catherine of Aragon, the wife of King Henry VIII of England. Why is it important to consider this marriage of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon? Because it ended in divorce and remarriage. And divorce and remarriage is a current issue in the Church and in the world today, as it has always been. And as we study this history and learn from Hilaire Belloc's telling of the story, we will see what a devastating result Henry VIII's lust had on the life of Catherine of Aragon, but also on him, uh, on Anne Boleyn, and on England, and indeed on human history. Because this is perhaps one of the most famous and most devastating divorces and remarriage that human history has ever seen. Chapter 2 Catherine of Aragon. The marriage of Henry VIII with Catherine of Aragon was of critical importance. Her age and character, the reactions of these upon Henry, her position in Europe, and everything else connected with her are of interest and importance to the understanding of the Reformation. Catherine of Aragon was the daughter of two very remarkable people, Isabella, who on the death of her brother became heiress to the Kingdom of Castile in Spain, and Ferdinand, who had been from early youth the King of Aragon. Now, Aragon and Castile were the two main kingdoms of Spain, and the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella brought all of those lands together. Suddenly, Spain was in one family. The marriage had taken place in 1640, and the crowns were united after a civil war in 17... and the crowns were united after a civil war in 1479. In 1492, the same year as that in which Columbus discovered America, but earlier in the year, the full conquest of the peninsula of Spain was accomplished, and the Muslim capital of Granada fell, and the last shred of the Muslim foothold in Western Catholic Europe was destroyed. All this added greatly to the prestige of the now united Spanish crown, and of course, when it was appreciated what the discovery of America meant, that prestige rose higher still. 
when it was a little later appreciated what an immense wealth would come to the Spanish sovereigns from their claims in the New World, the prestige of the House of Aragon and Castile, united by Ferdinand and Isabella, was complete. Hence, when Henry VII, with his base lineage and lack of claim, his haphazard acquirement of the English throne, actually arranged a marriage between his family and this Spanish royal house, it was a very great accomplishment indeed. There could be no comparison in the wealth or the prestige of the importance of the Tudors with the monarchs of Spain. Ferdinand and Isabella had two daughters, Joan and Catherine. The latter was to become the wife of Henry VIII and Queen of England. Joan, the older one, was of weak intellect, and she died probably quite deranged, and she bears the nickname Joan the Mad. Now, the Emperor Maximilian, of the family of Habsburg, who controlled Austria and lands in Holland and Belgium, had a son, Philip, who would succeed his father in the sovereignty of all this great but scattered territory, and probably, though not certainly, he would be elected emperor after him. For a man became emperor not by inheriting from his father, but by election at the hands of the great magnates, lay and clerical, who governed principalities and dioceses among the Germanies, nor was he technically fully emperor until he had been crowned by the Pope. The office of emperor was much the greatest in Europe, though it had no strong immediate political power, having no army of its own, nor any revenue of its own, but depending upon the goodwill and support of the German princes. However, in itself, to be emperor was the greatest thing one could be. To marry the emperor was the greatest marriage one could make. When, therefore, Joan of Aragon, the oldest daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, married Philip, this son of Maximilian the emperor, bringing with her the newly united kingdom of Spain, which her children would inherit, there was united in prospect under the rule of one man, Philip of Habsburg, not only the empire, and in direct rule large territories, including the immensely wealthy Netherlands with their great mercantile towns, southern Italy, which was part of the crown of Aragon and all Spain, united with all of the new wealth which it was now being seen was going to pour in from across the Atlantic. It was a marriage which looked as though it would put into one hand much the greatest power of all of Europe. The only great country standing outside the alliance was France. England was inferior in numbers and wealth, Scotland smaller still, Portugal, also small, Italy, divided into various principalities. The Christian Empire of the East had gone down before the Muslims. Russia had not yet emerged. Hence, it looked as though the family of Joan and Philip would overshadow all Christendom. But Philip died before his father Maximilian, the emperor. And when Ferdinand of Aragon was dead, and Isabella as well, the son of Philip and Joan, whose name was Charles, succeeded to his grandfather Maximilian. He therefore became sovereign of Spain, and the new discoveries in America, and the Netherlands, and Germany, and Burgundy, and Austria, and all the rest. And what was more, he was elected to the empire as his grandfather had been, and became the emperor in 1519. The result of all this was that during Catherine's later years, when she was queen of England, and mother to the heiress of England, and later still when her husband was thinking of divorcing her, she was not only great politically as the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, 
or as the wife of the King of England, but still more as the aunt, greatly revered and beloved of Charles V, Emperor, King of Spain, and the greatest figure in Europe. Catherine was born in December 1485, the same year in which Henry VII had usurped the crown of England. She was betrothed to the heir of this English king, bringing with her the promise of a large dowry. This young prince, Henry VII's son, was only fifteen years old, and when he married Catherine on November 14, 1501, she was not quite sixteen. Here there are two things to be understood by a modern person to whom the conditions of that time are necessarily strange. First, royal marriages of this sort between people who were little more than children gave no scandal. Second, the question of a dowry, that is, cash paid upon the marriage, was without question very important. The reason for the first of these points was that in the old united Christendom there were no wars of conquest, properly so called. Catholic morals did not admit the idea that any Christian prince was independent of the general morals of Christian unity. He might put in a claim on a piece of territory, saying that he had a better right to its inheritance than the actual owners. He might fight to substantiate his claim, and no doubt his claim might be a flimsy one. But the modern idea of merely taking a thing by force from other Christians and then ratifying your theft later by a treaty would have occurred to no one. The way in which states increase their powers, or as they would have put it, the way in which reigning families increase their powers, was by making marriages which would bring them in either large sums of money or new territories, from which further taxes could be gathered. Therefore, purely political arrangements were made by which quite young people, sometimes infants, were betrothed. The betrothal was not valid in the eyes of the church, of course, until it had been ratified by the young people after they had come to the proper age. But the two powers would hasten to have the marriage celebrated as soon as possible after the canonical age allowed by the rules of the church. Therefore, young people of this rank were often married at such an age as saw the marriage of Catherine and Henry VII's heir, Prince Arthur. The marriage did not become a real marriage, as a rule, until somewhat later. All this must be borne in mind when we consider the case of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII's divorce from her much later. Now, this young Prince Arthur, the older son of Henry VII, was younger than his wife, but he died four and a half months after the marriage on April 2nd, 1502, and young Catherine was left a nominal widow at the court of her scheming father-in-law, Henry VII, the Tudor King of England. The next point to consider, for it was important, was the question of her dowry. Governments in those days did not spend in proportion to the amount of national wealth anything like the amount they spend today. Often they spent less than one-fiftieth of what a modern government will spend. Therefore, the king needed to find some money. The consequence of such a state of affairs was that comparatively small sums of money could make a big difference. Put in terms of modern money, the private income of the king of England and all that he could get from his estates was very small. Now, Ferdinand and Isabella promised such a large dowry with their daughter Catherine. But they could not pay it all at once. There was a debt owing, and this had two important consequences. In the first place, it made Henry VII of England anxious, in spite of his son's death, to keep the money which he had already got from Ferdinand and Isabella, and also to keep his claim on the balance. Hence, the betrothal between young Catherine and Arthur's little brother Henry, who was now the heir to the throne of England, 
and who would later on his father's death become Henry VIII. A dispensation was required, of course, because it was neither affirmed nor proved that the marriage between Catherine and Arthur had not been consummated. There was a good deal of debate, as we have seen in the talking of Henry VIII, upon whether the Pope could give such dispensation, that is, upon whether the prohibition against marrying a deceased brother's wife were a matter of divine or of human law, since, of course, the Pope cannot dispense from divine law. However, the dispensation was obtained from Pope Julius II in 1504, and after Henry VII's death, young Henry VIII, then a few weeks short of his 18th birthday, married Catherine. She was five and a half years his senior, but still quite young, and they had been brought up together, and Henry was delighted with and determined on the marriage. In the interval between Arthur's death and her marriage with Henry, Catherine had had a very difficult time. She couldn't speak English. Her French was doubtful. Her native Castilian was the only tongue which she could think and express herself in readily. She had but one close friend to remind her of home, a confessor of the same nationality as herself. Her wretched father-in-law, Henry VII, had himself proposed at one moment to marry her, and even got the unfortunate child to write a letter saying that she was willing— but that project was put to rest by her indignant protests by her mother Isabella. Catherine's marriage to young Henry, therefore, was a relief, and as he was at that moment, it was also a delight. She was fond of him, and he was fond of her. But she was unselfish, whereas he was already one of the most selfish young men alive. In person, Catherine was short, broad, and fair, Active enough in body, she had one very pleasing mark, which was a charming temper. She was friends with everybody, and always smiling, universally popular, and at the same time busy in all her employments as queen. She was thoroughly liked by her subjects, and by everyone around the court. She was pious. As for that matter, Henry was too, after his fashion. But she was more rigid and austere in her Spanish piety. She had one defect in the business of government— which was a virtue in itself, and would have been an advantage in any other position, though it was a disadvantage in her position as queen. Catherine was very simple. It went with being very direct and straightforward, but she could not understand intrigue. She did not trouble to sound people's motives. She was rather too easily taken in. Over and over again during her life she acceded to proposals which would have been to her disadvantage, and from which wiser and more corrupt people had to dissuade her. But she was industrious and looked well after any affair that she undertook, and her servants and dependents were devoted to her. She ruled her household well. In active affairs, all that Henry did, especially in foreign policy, was more and more managed by Wolsey. But Catherine did not clash with Wolsey. The trouble between her and her husband, which broke her heart and made the whole of her life so great a tragedy, came from two things— First of all, it came from the wretched instability of Henry's character. Sensual, capricious, unable to control appetite, and abominably indifferent to the sufferings of others, spoiled in every way, and spoiled, I'm afraid, not a little by Catherine herself. Secondly, it came from her bad health, or at any rate her misfortunes in the matter of children. It is true that the king's own debauchery was responsible for her bad health later on, but I doubt whether it was responsible for it in the first. But later she had miscarriage after miscarriage, stillborn child after stillborn child. Only one child survived, Princess Mary, 
born in February 1516. There was no son and no other surviving issue, when five years later it was known that Catherine could bear no more children. Now here arises an important point. To what extent was Henry influenced in the abominable thing he did by his desire for a male heir? The whitewashers of Henry and the defenders of the great tragedy of the Reformation have argued with all their weight on that side. They have pretended in different degrees of sincerity that Catherine's ill success in providing him with an heir is the root of the whole problem. But it was not. The root of the affair was Henry's miserable infatuation with Anne Boleyn. He was somewhat worried by not having a male heir, it is true, because his throne was not too stable. His father had been a usurper. It was in its way important to leave a son to carry on the Tudor dynasty. On the other hand, the greatest thrones in Europe were handed on through women. Spain itself was a splendid example. And the little Princess Mary was so popular with everyone and would have been so thoroughly supported that there was no real danger of not having an heir. Put forward as the main excuse for the divorce, the pretense that the necessity for a male heir was the leading motive was simply falsehood and hypocrisy. When it was clear that Catherine would bear no more children, Henry gradually deserted her. He had several affairs. He took up with a woman whom he had known in boyhood, one Blount, and had a son by her whom he called the Duke of Richmond. He also took up a young lady by the name of Mary Boleyn. And when he was tired of her, he married her off to one of his other courtiers. He probably ceased to live with his wife as early as 1521, when he was no more than 30, and she, poor woman, still under 37. It was about 1522 that he first noticed Anne Boleyn, the sister of Mary, probably with the object of making her his mistress. And it was probably around 1525 that they came to some arrangement together to try to get rid of Catherine and conclude a marriage. The first document dealing with the divorce is dated from 1526, when Catherine was 41 years old and Henry 35. The first open steps taken for obtaining divorce were the next year, 1527. During all these half-dozen years of strain, Catherine bore herself with admirable dignity and restraint, probably with too much restraint. She might have done better had she protested, for Henry still stood in some fear and respect of her. And though he was passionate and would have outbreaks when he was thwarted, he was, like nearly all sensual men, subject to the control of stronger characters than himself. But alas, Catherine made no attempt at any such control. Though Anne Boleyn was one of her maids of honor, closely attached to her train at court, Catherine made no scenes. She did not intrigue to recover her position. What she did do was remain absolutely steadfast in her determination that her husband should never have it in his power so far as she could prevent it to call any other woman wife and queen. On that she was inflexible, and the very simplicity of her character lent her strength. As the shameful efforts against her legitimate position increased in violence, when Wolsey had lent himself to the plan, and when all Europe was discussing it and was concerned with the fate of the Queen of England, she herself remained immovable and mostly silent. She depended, of course, almost entirely upon the advice of her nephew, the Emperor Charles V. His ambassador was her chief counsellor, and she did everything by his advice. There again, perhaps, she was too docile and humble. Her policy, therefore, may not always have been directed upon the lines best calculated to succeed. But she had what is better than policy, perfectly clear principle, 
and a rigid attachment that has made her name stand as high as it can stand from those days to our own. What is more remarkable, she preserved the esteem and somewhat shape-faced regard of Henry, even when he had refused to see her any more, probably because he was still afraid of her influence and did not like to look her in the face. When he had announced that she was no longer to be called Queen, but only Princess Dowager, when he had her divorced, in spite of the Pope, by Anne Boleyn's man, Cranmer, she remained exactly the same. She claimed her full title. She refused to admit the right of the court to examine her marriage with Arthur. She equally maintained the right of her daughter to be heiress of England. And when Boleyn had the child Elizabeth in September 1533, who was illegitimate in the eyes of all Europe and by all Christian law, the people of England steadfastly continued to regard Catherine as the legitimate queen and Princess Mary as the right inheritor of the throne of England. Catherine did not long survive the tragedies which had been imposed upon her, and which she had borne with such steadfast courage. She died in January 1536, too early to see the fall and disgrace of her rival Anne Boleyn, and almost her last act was a letter still full of passionate love written to the king, who had not allowed her so much as to see him for now more than six years. It was then she wrote her famous phrase, the desire of my eyes is to see you again. The man had already damned himself. They buried Catherine of Aragon in Peterborough Cathedral, not putting over her one of those great and splendid tombs of the Renaissance, such as all her high kindred had throughout the West, but instead a plain black slab of stone on which there was not even an inscription until modern times. One may meditate with some profit on that simple and ignominious piece of masonry, the poor tomb of so good a woman, who stood at the origin of such great and disastrous things. It was widely believed, and on good authority, that her rival had caused her to be poisoned. It is equally probable, perhaps more probable, that she died a natural death, for we know from the autopsy that there was a small growth upon her heart, which may have been cancerous. Catherine died as her daughter Mary was to die many years later, hearing Mass, the Mass that was said in her sick room. She made the responses and received Holy Communion, and it is memorable and typical of her Spanish rigidity and orthodoxy, as well as her training in Catholic things, that when her chaplain and confessor offered to say Mass for her before the canonical hours, lest she should die without it, she bade him wait until the regular time had come, and she lived on a few hours more, sufficiently, to enjoy the fruits of her patience. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Characters of the Reformation by Hilaire Belloc. I hope that you will go to my blog and read my regular blog posts, enjoy the other podcasts which are there, and if you're able to, support the work that I'm doing by becoming a donor subscriber. Thank you for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusofLexington.com.